Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI. My guest today is Dr. Roberto Sintli Rodriguez. Uh, just published a new book available on University of Arizona Press called Our Sacred Maïs is Our Mother, Indigeneity and Belonging in the Americas. Dr. Rodriguez, uh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Mexican-American Studies. Your new book, Our Sacred Maïs is Our Mother, Indigeneity and Belonging in the America, is the culmination of a lot of research. Yes, I would say probably a couple decades. I, I started with a different idea when I began this project, you know, not knowing that I was going to do the initial project and then, then changing later. Yeah, I was handed a little map that showed that the Aztecs lived in, uh, in the Utah area, and that was in the 90s I got that little map. And I pursued it because I didn't quite know what they were talking about. You know, I didn't make any assumptions. I pursued it. I found that was that was a map from 1847, and it actually belongs or is attached to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And uh, I pursued the research because I was puzzled as to why that information would be there. And then, and I did find probably over 200 maps, older, and all of them. Uh, pretty much the older ones pointed to Salt Lake as the point of origin of Mexican Indians. Now, that will require a whole different book, different show, etc. But the maps do exist. Whether that they're accurate is a separate topic. While I was doing that, I remember Patricia and I actually talked about this and said, well, if this might be true, this thing about migrating from, say, Salt Lake down to Mexico City... There has to be evidence. And so we said, why don't we ask elders all along the way from Salt Lake all the way to Mexico City? And we did. You know, we did this over several years. And um, I remember the topic of corn kept coming coming up. And anyway, so to make a long story short, I was told, it sounds like you're looking for who you are, where you come from. And I said, if that's where your objective is, forget the maps. He goes, you're not going to find your origins on a map. If you want to find out who you are, where you come from, follow the corn, follow the map, follow the uh, the maíz. And uh, so that's what I did. You know, I think at about that point, Patricia started doing separate research, and I did research on maíz. And Patricia Gonzalez, author of the newly published Red Medicine. Correct. You know, it's kind of cool because we did, we started doing different research, but it comes together now. You know, on uh, October the 29th, University of Arizona, through the press, these, the museum and all that, they're going to celebrate both of our work. So it's kind of cool. Talk more about the journey of following the corn from that time when you made that decision to follow the maíz. Yeah, maíz is like, it, at the term many people use is stupendous, you know. It's a miracle crop. It's the only uh, food in the history of humanity that was created by human beings. All other, now we're not talking about genetic modification. That's a different story and more modern. But uh, for all the rest of the crops on the, on this planet, they evolved after millions and millions of years. Corn was literally, and again, scientifically created. It was mixed to... Um, a wild grass and telcintli were mixed together and out came maize. And this took place about 7,000 years ago. And it was in southern Mexico near Central America. 
And, you know, many of the leading scientists, botanists, uh, postulate that it only happened once. So there's only one origin to corn. So there's no mystery, meaning corn 7,000 years ago, it, it would be the equivalent of what happens today. It went viral. It went everywhere, you know, north, south, everywhere, to the islands, so that the important, and what that tells us is that, see, corn cannot grow by itself. It, it's a, it requires the technology. And so for corn to start in southern Mexico and end up in northern Canada or the southern Andes means that a person took it, taught the next person, and that person taught the other next person, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'll give you what, what I mean about no mystery. Cahokia in Illinois is a massive pyramid. And everybody there, you know, all the, all the archaeologists state that there was zero connection with the south. And yet in front of the pyramid is the m most massive cornfield on the continent. And it's like, remember, there's only one way for the corn to have gotten there. So, of course, there's a connection you know, the corn is an arch it's an artifact, it's an archive, you know, at, at that level of scientific proof. But, of course, it's beyond that. It's, it's everything. So there's a connection between the maize 7,000 years ago and big, huge cornfields in the Midwest of the United States. Well, to tell you the truth, I mean, corn, like I said, had but one origin. So, say, forget the present right now, but pre- Say for uh, up to fourteen ninety two, uh, if the corn was there, that means it was done through human contact. A, f a bird did not fly it and just drop it, and all out of us, all of a sudden it grew. It requires human care, or scientists say that it requires human intervention. But really, what it is is care, human care. One of the things that's spectacular. No, there's many things that are spectacular about maize. But the one thing that we know is that, you know, many people have invested or have invested in the idea that all the peoples of this continent were not connected, that they were all separate and unique, etc. And it's true, all the peoples are unique. However, maize and maize-based cultures are connected, one way or another. I what I wanted to add was about the importance of the book relative to my discipline. You know, I am in Mexican-American studies, formerly known as Raza Studies, also Chicana or Chicano Studies, which we know in Tucson suffered a heavy, heavy blows You know, here. One of the things that my work does is refute, and if anything, it, it, it highlights why uh, Tom Horn attacked Raza Studies. When... The discipline of Chicano and Chicano studies began in the 60s and early 70s. It was postulated that the Mexican-American had been created as a result of a war, and that's 1846 through 1848, and resulted in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which coincidentally is where I was, I was telling you about that map. It, it's part of that. So for many years, th that's how kids were taught that their history began in 1848, Scholars, and it was specifically as feminist scholars, challenged that idea and took it back to 1519. And that was supposed to be the when the first mestizo was born, or mixed person, you know, uh, purportedly Indian-Spanish. I, I was already out of school when that debate happened. But 
a generation later, when I got those maps and began to do the research, nobody spoke about war or invasion. You know, Maiz, you know, precedes that 1519 by 6,500 years. So it's it's a radical thing for, for my discipline. You know, the idea that, you know, our history begins not with war or invasion, but by a humble little seed, and that seed is Maiz. So that that's uh, that's one one thing that's been pretty radical ab- about all this. Uh, why Tom Horn would be object to this? Because it gives a different point of origin for humanity, at least humanity on this continent. Remember, he was he was insistent that all the schools, all the students, be taught the virtues of Western Western civilization that our origins began with the Greeks and the Romans, and that's what should be taught in Arizona schools, U.S. schools in general. What we find is that it was a bizarre argument. That is, to teach what is indigenous to this continent was seen as anti-American. You know, So here you have 7,000-year history on this continent. That's considered anti-American. You bring something from Europe, the Greeks or the Romans, and that's considered acceptable, permissible, teaching. You're listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today is Dr. Roberto Sintli Rodriguez, author of the recently published Our Sacred Maïs is Our Mother, Indigeneity and Belonging in the Americas. He's the assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American Studies, and he'll be speaking on Wednesday, October 29th from 6 to 8 at the Arizona State Museum, along with Dr. Patricia Gonzalez, author of the newly published Red Medicine Considering that many people haven't been taught the history of maize in this hemisphere, uh, what are some of the lessons that you think everybody should know? Well, the the history of maize, in effect, is the history of this continent. Now, that's it is generalizing, but you know, if there was such a thing as a history of this continent, the story of this continent, it would it would be maize. And what I mean by that is that there are other cultures and older cultures from that are from this continent, and they still continue. You know, uh, cultures that, uh, say, the salmon culture, the buffalo culture, thing, cultures of that nature, and they continue. Maíz is different only because it radically altered the continent. You know, otherwise it'd be just perhaps another culture, so to speak. But maíz did alter the continent in a big way, and. Um, it contradicts everything that, that most kids are taught. See, most kids are taught in schools that our peoples, that is indigenous peoples, whether Mexican, Central American, or American Indian, or South American Indian, that the peoples were illiterate, and worse, that they were satanic, that whatever they had here was knowledge from the devil. Uh, it's an amazing thing that a people could come over here you know, I, I, I'm convinced that they were superstitious people that came over here. And then they turned everything upside down, claiming that the people here were superstitious. You know, the problem with all that is that that never got corrected. You know, the assumption was made that, yes, they came with knowledge. No, they came with superstitions. And what was here was amazing. You know, that the calendars that are in existence, even to this day, uh, people always cite the Maya, but it wasn't really the Maya only. You know, all the pre-Columbian calendars 
you know, people referred to as Mesoamerican. They were all the same. They had different names. And to this day, they are more accurate than the calendars that we use today. And the reason is very simple, because they would begin their days at, say, midnight, uh, or the year at midnight, and, and then the following year, they would start the year at 6 a.m., the following year at noon, and the following year at 6 p.m. And so there was never a need for a leap year. So to this day, the calendars remain more accurate. Uh, so you have, see, the whole point is, is that, and, and I, I, I wrote it in a general sense, but I also wrote it because kids that are of Mexican origin, Mexican American origin, or Central American, and even South American, are taught to believe that they're part of that illiteracy, and so to speak, but worse, that they don't even have stories. You know, because a lot of times in this society, the, uh, the American Indian is romanticized, you know. I mean, good and bad, you know, mostly bad. But the minimum, the, the romanticization is the, the, the noble savage and on and on. Well, the Mexican and the Central American and South American are denied even that. That is the status of, of being indigenous. And instead, at best, mongrel and also, again, illiterate. And I think... For me, it's important that just as, say, the Navajo or the, the Diné or the Lakota or all these awesome nations or that, that managed to survive and, and hold on to traditions and stories and ceremony, that they're actually the, the Mexicans that were de-indigenized, that all that was taken from them, all that is still here. The difference is they were severed from it. They were disconnected from that culture. I learned that from an elder. He says, we... You know, the culture never died. The knowledge never went away. It's just that you were severed from it. And so to me, I consider the work that I'm doing, you know, part of that reconnection. And and even more important than that, it's creating new knowledge. Because I am part of, and I can give you an example as to how, why I say this. Because I am part of my East culture. And I absolutely was raised de-indigenized. I mean, my dad taught me all the stories, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but in but in effect, you know, I was not raised with ceremony, not the kind that we recognize. I was raised with stories, but uh, for the most part, I do believe that I was de-indigenized. You know, I, I don't know if there's a body that certifies anymore, but I feel very good about who I am. I know I'm from this continent. I know I'm from a Mayis-based culture. And one of the things that I did with this book to assert who I am is I retold the story of the origins of Mayis. And this is based on the Nahuatl traditions. It's called the Legend of the Sons, and it's and it's found in the Codex Chimalpopoca. And what it is, it's a story about Quetzalcoatl and Quetzalcoatl being assigned to create human beings by creator spirits in, in a place called Tamuanchan. After they create these human beings, uh, they find that the human beings can't move. So Quetzalcoatl is assigned the task of finding food for the people. So he goes into a field and finds a colony of red ants carrying corn. And puzzled by it, you know, he asks the ants what that is that they're carrying on their backs, and they don't want to talk to him. And to make a long story short, after it takes them several, uh, several uh, some cajoling, you know, several times, several efforts, and then finally the ants relent, tell him that it's corn, that it's sustenance, and that uh, that that they can that he can find it in a place called Tonal Capet, the Mountain of Sustenance. And so they take him there, but only to find that, that, that there's a tiny little hole and he can't get in there, except that 
Quetzalcoatl being a spirit can converts into a black ant, goes inside, and then eventually the seed—I mean, the seeds are hu- of humanity—are in there, and then they take them, you know, or rather, they become the food for humanity. Now, in when doing all this work for all these years, I one day I just noticed that I didn't understand why the ant said no, because I've always associated ants with collectivity, with sharing, and uh, I, I imagine by extension being generous. So I asked the elders when I first heard this story, I asked them why the ant said no, and I looked, I consulted all the books, all the codices, the Amoshlis on the, this topic, and nobody had an answer. Everybody said, like, well, we don't know why they said no. They just said no. That's how we were taught, that they hesitated and then then relented. And so then I said to myself, you know, understanding that the importance of a creation story the importance of an origin story and a migration story. Like, okay, I'm de-indigenized, right? I was raised de-indigenized. But I say, but I am part of this culture. You know, I am part of a Mayis-based culture. So do I have the right to alter this story, to give the answer? Because I said, I'm going to give the answer. And I did. In this book, I give the answer as to why the answer said no. Can somebody question that if they wish? But what's the point? That is, all peoples, all storytellers alter stories. That's the whole point of a story. And again, I fi- finally felt that confidence, and I said, well, then I, I will give that answer. So the answer that's found in the book is, is very simple, that the ants hesitated because they thought the ants, or rather the humans, would not care for the corn properly, that they would hoard it, keep it to themselves, eventually sell it, and yes, literally, that they would also genetically modify it at one point. You know, it's written so that it doesn't sound like a, like the scientific part of it sounds like, you know, out, out of left field. But no, and, and the awesome thing about this is I've, I've done this twice already since the book came out. I took it to Mexico Academy here in Tucson and then Semillas in LA. And I did the identical thing with first, second, and third graders. I told them the story and I told them about why the ants said no, the answer. And then, so half the kids at at the end become ants, the other become humans that can't move, and then we have Quetzalcoatl and Quetzalcoatl, and the ants are fierce. They keep telling Quetzalcoatl no, until finally they say, because Quetzalcoatl says, well, I am going to teach them the arts of humanity, and I am going to teach them how to be good human beings. So only until that is said, then the, the little ants relent, which are the little first graders and second and third graders, they relent and permit the humans to have the the corn. And the importance of that is, like I said, I mean, you should see the magic. And I don't know if that, maybe that word is overused, but just the, the, the idea that all of a sudden they are part of a story. They have a personal connection to it. It's not other people. You see, because part of, part of colonization was also dehumanization and also deceremonialization. And so that's why someone like myself, you know, I'm chocolate brown. I could look at myself in the mirror and maybe not me, but others, you know, will think of myself as not native, you know, kind of like, well, what else could I be? You know, I'm from here, but that's colonization. You know, we were taught that we're mixed. Well, the whole world is mixed, you know. Jack Forbes, you know, leading American Indian scholar, you know, he used to write about that all the time. Every human being is mixed. So the idea that we have a little bit of something, you know, like I might have some African blood, I might have some European blood, but I know for me, for the most part, and I don't know that it matters, the blood quantum, because I do know that I'm from here, you know. Um, The point being 
is that that and 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 part of what I did, I wasn't trying to claim indigeneity. You know why? Because I already knew that I was. I mean, how could I not know that? My dad taught me that when I was a little kid, five years old. You know, my mom taught me that. I, my first nickname was in Nahuatl. But the point is, every Mexican is, is indigenous, you know? Again, mixed with a little bit of something. So I wasn't debating that. I, what I wanted to assert that I was part of my East culture. And, then, and by asserting that, that I also have a right to create stories, not simply repeat them, you know? So that's what I think is different. And also, I, I had mentioned that... Uh, that in the old days, you know, we were taught that the the beginning of Mexican-American history started with that war, Mexican-American war, or invasion, you know, European invasion. So I'm saying, no, you know, we, you know, we uh, the part of us that is from Africa or Europe, well, we have thousands of years of history of that, you know, thousands of years. The part that's from here, you know, goes back also many, many thousands of years right here to this very continent. And even right here, uh, in what is today the Southwest in Arizona. In fact, Arizona, in fact, Tucson, Ina, and uh, Silver Lake is the site of the oldest cornfield in the country. What I was telling you earlier is that corn can't grow by itself. So that means that if it started near Central America and it ended up over here several thousand years ago, it didn't, it didn't get here again by birds. It got here by people migrating, you know, taking it here. So the people that are fear, that fear invasions of people, brown people from the south coming north, they already did that four, five, six, seven thousand years ago, you know. And again, follow the corn, and you will follow human migration. That's why, to me, this notion of legal or illegal is bizarre. That was what I when I went to get my PhD. That's what it was about. I was trying to understand why is there who created this concept of legal and illegal human beings and especially within a Mexican Central American context it makes no sense because the people like I said have been migrating here for thousands of years and, and it wasn't a one way migration people have migrated in all directions you're listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson I'm Amanda Shager my guest today is Dr. Roberto Sintli Rodriguez author of the recently published Our Sacred Maïs is Our Mother, Indigeneity and Belonging in the Americas. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American Studies. He'll be appearing on Wednesday, October 29th at the Arizona State Museum from 6 to 8 p.m., along with Dr. Patricia Gonzalez, author of Red Medicine. Dr. Rodriguez, how does your research continue? There is another project that I've been working on for a couple of years. It's called Smiling Brown. And what that's about, you know, I, I mentioned I'm I'm chocolate brown, you know, and I always have been and probably more so as a little kid because I was always outdoors. I mean, always. And that's not very different from a lot of us. You know, a lot of us are like that. But as as kids, you know, you're made to feel ashamed of that, you know, that that's bad or not good. A lot of times it's not told to you directly. It's told to you kind of like if you're next to somebody. And this happens in families. Like if, you know, you have brothers or sisters that are light and blue, green eyes, they're like the toast of the town, so to speak, you know. I decided, because I remembered all that growing up, I mentioned about looking in the mirror. Well, society convinces some people that they need to become lighter or even deny who they are. So I decided to collect stories. And I have been collecting stories for a couple of years. I have about 100 stories so far. And it's about 
the earliest memories of color consciousness. And a lot of it, all of it, I'd say most of it is denial of indigeneity. When I was a little kid, I used to close my eyes, and, and, and when I was taking a shower, I would scrub and scrub and scrub, and I opened my eyes thinking I might be lighter. I found out that that was one of two common stories of all the 100 that I've received so far. That was common. The other common one was when the babies are born, if they're light. The, the word light and beautiful are synonymous, you know. For example, I found out that, like, um, some kids, they were bathed in milk, you know, because if they were, that they might become lighter. And there's a lot of stories like that. One of them in particular that's kind of shocking is this man in his 70s who, ta- who told me that uh, when he was growing up that he used to wash, they used to try to lighten his skin with Brillo pads and Clorox. So everything in between milk to Brillo pads, I mean, you name it, that's one of the most common stories. And, you know, I you know, I pretty much have probably read every Chicano book in the country, you know, that's ever been produced. And that topic does not really, is not addressed. Artists have addressed it, uh, poets have addressed it, but not in a scholarly way, and at least not in at, in the realm of testimonial, you know, uh, story, and that's what I've been pursuing. And I, to me, again, it's all related to the, the same idea of the maize, you know, of the, the, again that denial and all that. So you know, I, I probably would talk about that on um, on Wednesday, because I, to me, it's like a it's a really cool thing that. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times when you write books, you do usually do signings at bookstores and stuff like that. But Arizona State Museum is very prestigious, you know. So for both of our works to be showcased, there, that, that's kind of really cool, and I'm really looking forward to that. Final thoughts? The one thing I could, it's, you know, when you do a radio interview, normally there's not video. The front cover to my book, you know, I think is something, in my opinion, it's it's an emotionally a codex, a book unto itself. That is, if you didn't know anything, and if you just saw the cover, it tells you a story that's thousands of years old. The story that I told you about, Quetzalcoa, the ants, and the gift of maize, that's it right there. I mean, it's like indigenous maps versus European maps. European maps are geography. Um, indigenous maps are story, are thousands of years of history. So that's what you have here, an origin, migration, creation story my it's my sister-in-law that actually did it you know she's done my work for years and when she asked me about this about what i wanted i said no i i don't want to i don't want to tell you what to do read i gave her the prologue to read she read it and produced it and i've never seen i mean people are mesmerized by this but the primary message isn't so much hidden you know if anything it's revealed you know again that this continent has Many, many stories. They've been suppressed, you know, from the from the time that Europeans first got here, you know, throughout history and even our own Tucson history. People don't want people to know this story. I don't understand why they they would object to it, because all cultures are awesome, you know, peoples of India, China, you know, Europe, Africa. Everyone has an awesome history, awesome culture, awesome stories. Why someone would be bothered by the stories from this continent? It's like, it's it's not even beyond me. It's like, we're on this continent. You know, shouldn't every kid on this continent know the story of this continent? You know, I think they should. I was talking about the front cover, but also the title itself, Our Sacred Maïs is Our Mother. The message for me, in both the cover and title, 
is that the kids that are told to go back to where they came from, you know, that they're alien and they're foreigners, this thing is the answer, so to speak. You know, this story precedes. It's not a counter story. It's its own story. And so every little kid that can relate to this will be able to say that I am from here. I don't need to go anywhere or go back anywhere. You know, and that's one of the problems that not only we face in this country, but in Arizona, it's like in, a, in an extreme mode. And I think I feel very good about having done this because I believe that that's what kids need to know, to be reassured that no human being is illegal and that all human beings are equal. We'll include the cover of the book on the podcast. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. My guest today has been Dr. Roberto Sintli Rodriguez, author of the newly published Our Sacred Maiz is Our Mother, Indigeneity and Belonging in the Americas. That book is available from UA Press. Dr. St. Lee is the assistant professor of the Department of Mexican-American Studies. He's speaking on Wednesday, October 29th at the Arizona State Museum from 6 to 8 p.m., along with Dr. Patricia Gonzalez, author of Red Medicine.